Hello, everyone. Welcome to Freedom Talks. This is Brady, and today we are uh, have Dan Polino on the podcast. Uh, Dan is an innovator, thought leader, and author. He's the co-founder of Everyone Matters, a social impact enterprise dedicated to ensuring that everyone has the right to dignity and respect, to be who they are without being shamed or deemed uh, demeaned, and to thrive within their own unique individuality. Uh, Dan is also the co-author of Trusted Healers, Dr. Paul Grundy and the Global Healthcare Crusade, written in September of 2017, or 2019, sorry. Dan, um, how are you doing today? Hey, Brady. I'm good. How are you? I'm not too bad. Um, So, Dan, I'm really excited to talk with you today just based on your experience and obviously uh, the book that you have out um, and your knowledge that you have of the healthcare system and um, I'm really interested in the process that you had to take to uh, write that book and, and what led you to write that book. Could you uh, kind of run us through your background? I know you worked at IBM. Um, how did that all influence um, you as you were kind of growing up and gaining experience uh, to eventually need to uh, have that calling to write Trusted Healers? Yeah, thank, thanks a lot. So I, I, I did... Uh... I did work for IBM for 36 years, which was just terrific. And I'm uh, kind of a behavioral science guy, organizational development. And so I'm always looking to figure out how you create value, looking the gaps around the corners, things differently. And IBM has tremendous engineers and is a wonderful technology company and loves to solve grand challenges. And uh, through my time at IBM, I had some wonderful opportunities, one of which was to had the great fortune of running our healthcare and life sciences business, and then all of our government healthcare education, life sciences business globally, uh, which was about 20 billion of our $100 billion at, at the time. Uh, had a tremendous team, wonderful people. And, um, and we decided, as we say in the book, to look at healthcare differently. We, along with Dr. Paul Grundy, the idea of patient-centric care, the patient in the middle, the idea of uh, hospital systems, working with insurance companies, working with pharma, uh, all around not only the episode of care, but also on wellness, preventative care, that continuum of care that you would find in like a medical home. And and that was a fundamentally different thought because hospitals were thought to be hospitals. health insurance companies were thought to be insurance companies. And pharma was actually thought of to be a distribution type organization. And and people had not necessarily at the time put the patient in in the middle of that. And so that's what we worked to do because uh, you could start to bring data together across electronic medical records. You could start to have levels of cooperation between the various organizations. And and now we've moved so far in, in the direction of patient-centric care, as I know you you know, and the ability to bring in the best from pharma. Uh, insurance companies now are very focused on health and wellness, mental and behavioral health, which they weren't in the past. And then you start to look at the role of, um, of care, primary care, RNs, PAs, et cetera, even specialty care, the idea of the continuum of care. And so we... Uh, I'd been around the world talking to different organizations, saw the best performing systems. And when I retired, many of my clients and people that we had influenced said, Dan, you have got to write a book. 
because I am what you would call a community builder. I, I am not uh, a CEO of a hospital system. I'm not a CEO of a health insurance company, nor am I a CEO of pharma, nor am I a PT like you are. Um, I am someone that brings people together to try and create that value. And that's what we spend our time doing. And that's what we take people through in the book. It's a wonderful journey across healthcare, leadership, and societal change, trusted healers. So uh, I, I'm not a PT, just want to clarify that. Don't want anybody coming to me for advice uh, like that. Uh, but I do work here at Freedom. Um, and so what, what specifically did, like, what was the process like um, observing some of those hospital systems from different countries? Um, what did you look at? Did you look at metrics? Did you look at, um, you know, happiness studies uh, for, for the populations that you observed? Um, you know, what, what were you looking at? What were you observing specifically? Well, there's some obvious metrics. Life expectancy is, is right at the top of that. Um, cost is another one. And then you can start to look at episodes of care. When you stratify all of those together, you find that countries that spend more money on wellness and preventative care have people that live longer and they're happier and they're not in the hospital as much. To give you an idea on the, that metric, in the US, we spend between five and seven dollars of a hundred on preventative care and wellness. Around the world, others that perform better spend 14 to 20 dollars of the first hundred on preventative care and wellness. So you can see immediately you could bring those kind of ideas in countries around the world back into the US that would focus more on wellness and preventative care. Now, having said that, I still believe that the best specialty care in the world is right here in the United States. And there's good reason for that. Uh, however, we all wanna be well and we wanna live longer. And what we're looking for now is team care models. It's sort of like NASCAR or Formula One. We are in the race of our life. And what we want is a pit crew made up of RNs and, and PAs and, and PT and, and uh, doctors, whether they're primary care uh, or specialty care, all wearing the same color of our car. And we are in that race of our life. And we need them to call us in when we need the checkups to be able to take care of us, uh, make sure that we do the right kind of things as one team as one team, a team care model uh, versus an episode of care and one that helps us in the race of our life. So, you know, the the one thing that kind of comes to mind when you say that team care model is that um, I think, and I could be, uh, I, I could be wrong, but I think a lot of people in the U.S., because some of the healthcare issues are so political, view um, you know, the team care model as like, it's gotta be centralized healthcare. Um, and I, th I think based on some, of, a lot of the things that I watched from you is that you don't necessarily believe that it has to be, um, a centralized government run, uh, program no, as not, long, not, not as, long as the private systems look as they can make money, um, by viewing everything through this preventative care model, through this team model, 
um, and, and still make things work in the U.S. as they are with a lot of privatized um, healthcare networks? Well, let, let, let's just start with the basics, just so everybody's together here. Sure. In, in the U.S., we have four ways that people pay for care, and it ends up looking somewhat political. Yes. So the four ways, there's the Veterans Administration. People would know that as the government owns those hospitals and the docs work for the government. Medicare and Medicaid, which we brought forward from Canada, which allows people of certain age and income levels to qualify for care at certain price points. And then that was brought into the U.S. in the 60s by Lyndon Baines Johnson. I will tell you, Brady, it was always brought in that the age for Medicare would be lowered so that more people would qualify as they get older. And at one point in time, the idea was to have it around 50, 55 years old. There's a good reason for that, because as long as uh, you get past 57 without certain levels of diseases, you're going to live a long time if you take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. So the idea was to close the gap to ensure everyone had the right kind of care from that, that 57 till 65 or so. And so that's being debated today. And then, of course, there's the insurance, the private insurance market, which came from Europe. And as a matter of fact, if you and I were in Switzerland and let's say you were wanting to buy a flat, an apartment, you couldn't buy one until you proved you had health insurance. Hmm. And of course, there's a fourth option, which is some people, maybe some of your listeners, some young people, they go alone. They don't have any insurance at all Mm -hmm. and they'll pay for it as it comes. Now in the US, those four systems being applied the way they are, because the US likes choice and different people get a chance to qualify different ways. It costs 37% more for healthcare due to administration, administrative costs. So this is not a political conversation. I, I do think there's a right versus privilege that, that makes sense for a conversation. Sure. And in the book, I write about that, yep. about what that looks like. And we know most uh, or, or most countries uh, and, and the ones that perform better than we do, as the metrics you and I talked about, they believe that healthcare uh, is in fact a right uh, versus a privilege. So given that as a, a backdrop, I think there's many things that we can do. I do believe we should lower the age for Medicare to allow more people to qualify uh, for, for Medicare type reimbursement. And then you can sell supplementals over the top people that want additional services. And I believe on Medicaid, we should raise the poverty level. So those underserved individuals get a chance to be able to have care. So we do not leave this problem at the doorstep of the emergency room, which is the most expensive way to handle it. And so there's a lot of debates that are going on now. As a matter of fact, today they're they're discussing minimum wage and whether that should be $15 or not. The minimum wage today is $7, almost $8 or so. That keeps people in a poverty level. Mm -hmm. So they qualify under the, 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 the Medicaid aspects. So both Medicare and Medicaid serve a very important need to us. And the idea to expand those services makes sense. And there's abilities to put additional services on top of those as well for people that want to. And then of course, there is the regular insurance and concierge medicine that's available for people to do that. I don't think this has to be a political system. I think what we need is the continuum of care 
the ability to have these team care models that we talked about. My goodness, we've worked hard on electronic medical records to have them more pervasive. What a difficult journey that's been. Do you know that there were over a thousand EMRs for, for a while? Then when we got down to the ability to have some kind of use that was described, we were then looking at 600 or so that were certified to be able to be meaningful use. My goodness. Now there's roughly five that matter in the country that serve over 85 to 90% of the market. And there's two dominant ones. And you can start to share information across systems with some of their portals, like my chart that Epic puts out there. We've been able to come a long way here. So the idea of having a system of care, of team care models, especially with telehealth, is something that's upon us and something that I write about. And I believe we can make great strides and help with the quality of life of people in the U.S. We've seen it other places. Brady, we can do this. So what are what are the steps then to, um, you know, put this process into place? Because um, I I I don't know for sure. I'm not. I have I'm very limited in my knowledge of uh, how things actually work in Congress in terms of getting things passed. And um, what it sounds to me is to expand some of these services, it might cost a little bit of money up front, and that might be why it's a little bit political because we would technically have to take some of the budget and you know some people depending on the side of the aisle they they sit on might not want to do it but overall it's going to end up saving us money long term it's just a matter of biting the bullet now right well i wouldn't even go to the political conversation with Brady. Gotcha. The, the reason is this can be done in the private sector today and okay. many are As a matter of fact, when you turn on your television, you're going to see many of the insurance companies, when they're selling insurance to you, making you aware of products, they're talking about now mental and behavioral health as well as physical health. When I was on Dr. Oz with with my friend Patrick Kennedy, who wrote the foreword into the book, we talked about check up from the neck up and to know your rights and what you should do and try and address these things. There's many things that we can do independent of a political conversation. Sure. And it kind of gets me a little concerned that people rest on the fact that there's a political argument for not taking better care of their own health. Well, That's not that. what we're asking them yes. to do. Yep. And I'm afraid they hide behind this thin veneer of debate that is not helpful. So then really what I'm hearing then is this is a market solution, uh, private companies, private providers and insurance companies I'm not sure about the pharma side of things. Um, just need to put uh, kind of wellness at the forefront. Now, uh, I've got a question for you about what you think of where the American population's head is at, because like just in practice here and physical therapy, right? We've tried to in the past uh, create packages for kind of uh, wellness checkups, like. Uh, make sure that you're coming in, you know, once or twice a month just to make sure everything's looking good um, and keep you moving and giving you the exercises maybe to keep you healthy, keep your posture good, um, strengthen your core, that kind of thing. Um, 
but we're much more likely to gain patience through, like you said, episodes of care. Someone gets injured and then that's why they see their PT. Um, I know it's different in many different segments of healthcare, but I would say even, you know, I, I would, I think, you know, even among my uh, age population, how many of them actually go get their yearly physicals done um, with their doctor and things like that compared to if they get sick or if they get injured kind of thing. You know, Brady, societal change is very interesting. Let me just give you a couple of things to think about. First of all, do you know when the first flu shot came out? Uh, my guess is early 1900s. 1930. Okay. How long did it take before it became generally available? Just available. Not without people took it, but generally available. Probably the 80s or 90s, correct? It was actually 15 years before it was generally available. Now, just following your logic right there, we'll throw out last year from the CDC determining how many people took the flu shot because sure. of COVID. But when they were a couple of years ago, what percentage of the American population takes the flu shot? I don't have any idea on that number. 48%. 48%. So there, there's a whole aspect of societal change of how people take care of themselves, how many pay attention to wellness, et cetera. And unfortunately, we've built a society that allows us to have a pass on the front door of care and come in on the back door, the expensive side yep. of care. Mm -hmm. People that are diabetic, people that eat a bag of Oreos before they go to bed at night, people that eat a whole pizza, and think that's okay. People that don't exercise as well. As a matter of fact, today on the NBC show, today they had Al Roker walking through Central Park and they used a figure that said that less than half the population exercises 2.5 hours a week. Yeah. 2.5 hours a week. Now you would probably say that's probably true. This is the reason these people show up to you in an yeah. episode of care. Yep. And then they try and get it better and then maybe they relapse. Now, this is all about health literacy. And a lot of this is because we've had generations that have come before us. They didn't talk to us much about health literacy. Mm -hmm. We didn't really talk about how to eat right. We didn't talk. And this is a great gift that we should pass on to our generation. Now, I talk about this in the book. In the good book, the Bible, they reference 40 more than any other number. You know why they do that? Jesus walked the desert for 40 days. And, and there's other aspects, but yes, sure. that, that, that's, yep. that's part of it. They use 40 as a metaphor for generations. A generation in that time was roughly 40 years. Okay. So using that analogy, 1928, the first movie, Wings, comes out on air flight. 40 years later, we put a man on the moon. 1968, Martin Luther King gets shot. 40 years later, we put Barack Obama in the presidency. 1965, we bring out Medicare and Medicaid. And then here we have conversations about how do we expand this to go forward. So it's going to take it a while. Have to it takes a while. Yep. That's what I'm telling you. And, and, and this is about societal change. And, and this is why in the book, kind of a spoiler alert at the end of it i asked could you should you will you be your own trusted healer 
Should we all take on more accountability for our health and what we do on wellness and preventative care and having a relationship with a primary care doc and doing the things we should? And I think we can. I think we can. I agree. I, I think that's awesome. Do, so do you think um, we've seen a lot of positive change? Because um, I would argue that, uh, you know, my generation and younger than me as well, um, you know, more mental health things about, you know, taking care of your mental health, more um, talk about, you know, potentially expanding sick leave and having uh, paternity leave uh, for children and things like that. And, um, you know, some, some positive conversation from the younger generations uh, as well as the older generations as well. But um, have you seen a lot of change already, you think? Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. You know, okay. there's, there's wonderful change. So you, you just highlighted a couple of them where you, you get into benefits, you know, for when a, a, a woman would have a baby, boy, if they had two weeks off, that was amazing. Now it's yeah. six months and forget about the guy, yeah. you know, or, you know, the partner, the partner didn't count in yep. this conversation. Now it's equal benefits. Um, there's also far more about mental and behavioral health that's available through telehealth. You know, right now in the COVID world, the most appointments that are being scheduled are for what? Mental, Mental and behavioral health, health yep. right? So, so that's significant. Also, uh, for your for your listeners right now, okay, this is uh, the uh, chance for them to participate. All right, raise your hand. How many people use Noom? How many people use Calm? How many use these apps that are on the phone to help you with either weight loss, exercise, uh, the ability to uh, think differently, get yourself calm while you still have your hands up. How many of you have a Peloton uh, and use that at home? Come on, raise those hands. I can see you. So so this is why uh, I, I, there's a level of hope here, Brady, th that out in the audience, there's probably, you know, half the audience now has raised their hand and said, yeah, my, you know, I do a telehealth visit. Yeah, I use a Noom or a Calm or something like that to help me. Uh, yes, I have a, a, a Peloton, you know, wish I did it more, but I, I have that there. Uh, th there was no such thing as those kind of apps when I was growing up. Um, now we, you know, I was a paper boy and an altar boy and we played basketball in the, you know, in the driveway and stuff. And I think those things are still very important, but we also have these other opportunities for us as individuals to take better care of ourselves. So getting into the book a little bit more, um, just for our listeners, could you kind of explain uh, kind of the importance and impact that uh, uh, Dr. Paul Grundy had on, on the book and, and what, uh, why he was a kind of a main figure? Oh my gosh, Paul is just a rock star. He is the son of uh, two missionaries that were um, in South Africa, uh, Quaker uh, as an individual, just one of the most special people you've ever met in your life. And he believed that there was a better care model. And, and he has been called by Time Magazine, the godfather of the medical home, this idea of the continuum of home. Brady, trust me, this guy is on the Mount Rushmore of healthcare. Uh, he is one of the leaders that made a difference in primary care, the role of PAs and RNs and that front door of care that we need so badly to be 
open more than it is today. And so we followed Paul as he worked with uh, uh, Nelson Mandela. He uh, worked with four sitting presidents. He's an ambassador to Denmark, knighted in the UK, well represented around the world as a thought leader, if not the thought leader on the idea of the medical home, the concept of team care models and that continuum of care that we all so, uh, so, so very much want for all of us and our families. And so, you know, after writing the book and then um, obviously gaining all of the knowledge that you have through all of your experience, um, I'm, I'm really a little bit fascinated by your, your tour uh, promoting the book and then also um, going in front of some of those world leaders and giving advice like you've spoken to Barack Obama. Um, what is it like when you're in a room with him? Um, and, you know, what questions is he asking you? What are you presenting to him um, during those kind of meetings? Well, it's been a great privilege to work with these leaders around the world. And I so appreciate them uh, inviting me and our teams in and Dr. Grundy and others to have these kind of conversations and Dr. Oz and the various shows, et cetera. So, one, a shout out of thanks to have them invite me in for the conversation. You know, Brady, what we found out is the great leaders, they start out by asking a question. Mm -hmm. They don't start by giving you the answer. Yep. And, and, and so with that, they invite in a conversation of how can it be better? Tell me what it looks like. And through stories and the ability to understand the impact, that's what these great leaders do. And, and I believe they, they do three things. They create an aspiration that inspires many and they have the discipline for follow-up and speed to ensure that it works right. Course correction and speed. So if your listeners are writing anything down or find anything of value, three words, have an aspiration that inspires others and make sure you have the discipline for course correction and speed. And that's what I learned from these great leaders. They create an aspiration that inspires people. And the very good ones have the discipline to make it stick and know whether to go faster or slower, how to make it happen. And in the book, I actually give six promises in, towards the back of the book of these wonderful lessons that I learned from these terrific leaders. And it's um, that along with the 10 questions to ask your doctor about whether or not you're in a medical home are two of the favorite pages that people tear out and keep. That's, I mean, I, yeah, that, that fast, that fascinates me. Um, I, I just, I can't imagine being in, in a room with uh, all those people and that must be uh, amazing. Um, is doing the, the Dr. Oz show, how, how did that process go? Did that, was that uh, interesting or was well, that just? Yeah, no, it's, uh, well, first of all, a wonderful team. I've learned so much, right? So there's no way that one person uh, stands before any of these people without uh, great teams and people, smart yeah. people, et cetera. And everybody has their role, right? So, and, and my, my role to uh, create movements and go forward. And remember, I'm a behavioral science guy, right? So I, 
I think about how you move things forward and create value, et cetera. And that's what we did now with, with being on the Dr. Oz show. We were, uh, Patrick and I were honored to be in the Dr. Oz show. I'll tell you a personal story. Uh, before we went on, when we were backstage, we said a little prayer that maybe through our words today and people watching that uh, we would have a positive impact on a life, maybe even save a life because we spent the time with Dr. Oz talking about mental and behavioral health. And um, uh, it turned out to be one of the most watched shows. And uh, Patrick's an amazing leader in mental and behavioral health and some of the opioid challenges. I've been honored to be um, associated with Patrick since 2006 and do different things with him and consider him and Amy good friends of ours. And he's just uh, another tremendous leader that we highlight in the book. And uh, I was blessed to have Patrick uh, write the foreword for, for the book, Trusted Healers. Um, and so um, also you, you're the co-founder of Everyone Matters. Um, could you kind of explain uh, the impact that you think Everyone Matters has made as well as the book? And then um, how did the, the formation of Everyone Matters come together? Yeah, let me tell you the story about how we um, named it Everyone Matters and how we came before it. So along my, my time and travels, I would speak to many groups, um, some very large, some a little smaller, but I, I would speak to many people about the things you and I are talking about today. And I would conclude just about every one of these conversations with a question that I would ask the audience. I'll ask you here. Why do we do what we do? Why do we do what we do? Now, Brady, I got to tell you, for the most part, some of the people would look at me with the stare of the Wisconsin Dairy Cow. Like, what <laughs> is this guy asking me? Am I supposed to turn to my neighbor? You know, am I supposed to raise my hand? And uh, it was really meant to be rhetorical at first, but because I would actually answer the question, why do we do what we do? And it's because everyone matters because everyone matters. Now, Brady, as I continued on my uh, meetings and some of the introductions to the book, et cetera, when I would say at the end, why do we do what we do? Now people would actually answer it from the audience <laughs> because everyone matters. And so that's why the company, Everyone Matters Inc. is in existence. It's meant for everyone to have a voice. It's really focused on citizen-based services in the area of healthcare, education, government services, some aspects of life sciences, and some aspects about smarter cities, where cities are going in the future, and what does that look like for, for all of us. And um, it's been a wonderful endeavor. Uh, I formed this with Ann Altman, and uh, we have many people that are part of this, and we get a chance to try and influence things for the good. So then, if you could give a piece of advice to somebody uh, that's kind of starting out, uh, kind of that 18 to 30-year-old person um, to kind of push forward this idea that everyone matters and to kind of help create the societal change that you're talking about um, to introduce this kind of... Um, spectrum of care that everybody needs to live a long and happy life. Uh, what would you, what would you say? Well, let me give you three things to think about. So if your listeners are thinking out there, maybe three, For, first of all, um, something that I 
learn that sometimes we all learn the hard way, which is you're never as good as you think you are. You're never as bad as they tell you you are. And, and, and that happens, you know, life's kind of a roller coaster ride. And sometimes things are good and sometimes they're not. And how you handle that is really important. So I think you have to have that right balance in, in how you do anything in life. And, and speaking about anything in life, uh, I, I coached soccer um, for 26 years internationally, played, teams played major tournaments, et cetera. I have more scars than stars. We lost more than we won, I'm sure. And I had many a conversation with top players with our backs against a chain link fence or a stadium wall where I would say it's better to have cried and tried than never to have cried and never to have tried. So get on the field, play in the ropes, go do it. And don't be afraid to try. Don't be afraid to cry because it is life worth living as opposed to, I never tried and I never cried. And the last I'll give is just something I said to you earlier, have an aspiration that inspires people and then have that discipline to know if you can go faster or you have to change course. So I would say you're never as good as you think you are, never as bad as they tell you are. It's better to have tried and cried than never to have tried and never to have cried. And then the last, aspiration, inspiration, and discipline. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. That uh, that that certainly is inspirational, and, and your life story is inspirational, and um, the, your your goals still that you aspire to are inspirational. Um, I hope that we can see the change that you're kind of uh, proposing in your book. Uh, you can find uh, Dan on his website at everyonematters.com, correct? Um, everyonemattersonline.com. Sorry about that. Um, and you can buy his book uh, on Amazon, Trusted Healers, Dr. Paul Grundy and the Global Healthcare Crusade. Dan, do you have anything else that you would like to plug that you want our listeners to know? Listen, I so appreciate being with you, Brady. Uh, keep doing the good work, bringing these kind of messages to people. It's people like you that reach individuals that can make a difference. And I so appreciate being with you today. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you by Freedom Physical Therapy Services, an independent provider of comprehensive physical and occupational services. No matter how challenging your issues, if other treatments have failed, we are determined to help you heal starting with the very first visit. Four convenient locations in the Milwaukee area. More information at freedompt.com.